The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony's Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I am happy to be joined today by principal clarinet of the Utah Symphony, Tad Calcara. Tad, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here. Great to have you. Now, I want to jump right in and talk about your life as a musician because it's not the standard clarinetist life, I would, I would say, because you live very comfortably on both sides of the classical jazz divide. Did you pursue both things from a very young age or did the jazz thing come later? What, talk about your history. Well, it started way back. Uh, of course, we grew up with classical music uh, in the household. Uh, my mother loved to sing. And actually, my father was a clarinet player and ah. uh, played in a, a little orchestra in Southern California. And, um, you know, we just grew up with, with classical music around the house. Uh, when I would go over to my grandfather's house, grandparents' house, my grandfather was a band leader. Mm-hmm. He played uh, swing music, big band stuff. And uh, so I kind of got the best of both worlds yeah. uh, heading over there. Uh, listening to music of the 1930s and 40s, pop music from that era, and then back over to my uh, back home with my parents and hearing Mozart or Beethoven or Stravinsky. Right. right. So you've 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 had that in your blood, both things for a long time. It appears to be so. Yeah, yes. yeah, and, and it sounds like family influences were big too. So, yes. so you didn't you didn't just listen and pay attention with your grandfather. You do it still today. You have a swing band of your own. That's right. The New Deal Swing. When did when did they form and Tell us about the historical bands that you consider your biggest influences. Oh, well, it goes goes back to when I was about uh, eight, nine years old. Mm-hmm. And um, I just got fascinated with early jazz. I saw a silent movie, a Buster Keaton movie. And the soundtrack for the movie was this wonderful 1920s jazz. I'd never heard anything quite like that. And it was just uh, so intoxicating listening to this music. And um, and then I kind of progressed into the 1930s, uh, the era of the big bands and mm. swing music. And, of course, uh, started listening to people like Duke Ellington and Benny Goodman. And, uh, boy, you know, I, all of a sudden I really wanted to play this music. Uh, my first choice was uh, trombone. I was very interested in, uh, in uh, being a Tommy Dorsey or a Glenn Miller, both trombonists and band yeah. leaders. Uh, but my parents uh, made it very clear that uh, when you get your own house, you can learn the trombone. Um, so, it was a volume decision. Oh, it certainly was. I think my father didn't want to hear right of the Valkyries or I something. Love too. It. But um, yeah, my father being a clarinet player, you know, says, well, you like Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw. How about the clarinet? He says, well, sure. You know, the thing was, Jeff, I, I just wanted to do something in music. It almost didn't matter what instrument it was. You know, I had studied piano as a kid and, and uh, guitar and even violin, and I just loved music and and i wanted to do something in it and so it's like well sure i'll take up the clarinet why absolutely and really enjoyed it and after a a few weeks i figured out how to play rhapsody in blue and drove my parents crazy with that you've been playing it ever since exactly they probably regretted (laughs) that statement about the trombone but anyway anyway i had my kicks playing glissandos on that absolutely Uh, but so swing music has been you know always something that's been there and of course when I got to high school, I, I wanted to get better on the clarinet, so I started studying, um, finished up studying with my father, and then began studying uh, with a very fine uh, clarinetist uh, uh, freelancer in mm-hmm. the San Diego area. So I got a very good, solid uh, classical training, and of course, became very interested in playing classical music. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where I ended up in this kind of dual dual career. Yeah. When did New, when did New Deal Swing start? When, when did that uh, 
Well, this began about 2003, so uh -huh. it was about my uh, fourth season with, or fourth or fifth season with the Utah Symphony. Yeah, you started here in 99, right? That's right, yeah. yes. And, um, you know, I had uh, accumulated uh, a bunch of these musical arrangements from the Benny Goodman archives. Uh, previously, I was with the New World Symphony with right. Michael Tilson Thomas, and he encouraged me to do a, a big concert of all clarinet stuff, whatever, anything you wanted, chamber music, uh, you know, classical, jazz, and I obtained these copies from the Goodman Estate, and this was one of the segments of the show. And so this was like, you know, heaven, being able to, Absolutely. you know, have these Fletcher Henderson arrangements from the 1930s and to perform them. And so um, fast forward to uh, my time with the Utah Symphony, some friends were giving a party and says, hey, how don't we put together a big band for this? It's a great idea. It Let's sure just, is. <laughs> I've got music, yeah. you've got instruments, yeah. so we, uh, we did. Um, our music director at the time uh, heard the band and said, hey, why don't you uh, appear on one of the pop shows with the symphony? And I said, well, great, we'd love to. And so we appeared, as you know, Jeff, uh, I remember this times. very well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, Deer Valley in 2010, and right. we did several shows at Bravenel Hall, and uh, it was been a thrill to, to play this music before uh, the public it's ever a, since. It's a wonderful thing to have this band in Salt Lake City. Yes, we stay uh, pretty busy. The yeah. local excellence in the community series has mm -hmm. us pretty frequently, and uh, and it's a lot of fun. And, and the way we're different is that we there's a lot of big bands, and, and they're certainly very good, but most of them play contemporary uh, big band arrangements. Very good, fine arrangements, right. but our band, we stay very happily in the past. Yeah. Uh, we uh, strictly stay in the 1930s and 40s playing the original arrangements uh, from you know 75 and 80 years ago. Yeah, well, you've chosen something pretty amazing as a specialty. I don't think you can that. It's really great stuff. <laughs> you know, I'm so glad you mentioned Benny Goodman on a couple of occasions and you're um, talking about your history there because I do want to talk about the Copeland Concerto. That's, right. as we record, the piece you'll be playing with your colleagues tomorrow night at the Deer Valley Music Festival. And I know that Copeland wrote this piece for Benny back in the late 40s, right? That's right. So does this piece have special significance for you? I mean, like you, it connects the club with the concert hall. So, I mean... <laughs> Talk about the piece and what it means to you. Well, uh, you hit the nail right on the head. Um, certainly, uh, you know, this is one of uh, many pieces that Benny Goodman commissioned mm -hmm. over his uh, life. And um, this is uh, one of my favorites of all the commissions. And, and actually, I think it was one of Benny's. He said it was one of his uh, most successful. Um, let's see. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, talk over the years and kind of downplaying popular music and popular sure. musicians who play it. And I think Benny Goodman was uh, wanting to make a statement that, you know, uh, swing music and jazz uh, is a serious art form and it takes real dedication mm -hmm. and uh, discipline just as a classical musician does. Like many of the great jazz musicians are classically trained like Benny Goodman. Like you. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Benny, um, in fact, on his weekly radio show in the 30s, invited the uh, Budapest String Quartet uh -huh. to appear with him and sure. play a movement of the Mozart Quintet. I think it also broadened the appeal of classical music. He really did a, a lot uh, to promote it. Uh, he was invited to, to solo with the New York Philharmonic, uh, Leopold Stokowski in the Los Angeles Philharmonic at the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. And, of course, he um, realized, unlike the violin and the piano, which has, you know, oodles and oodles of great uh, yeah. uh, piano concertos and violin concertos, the clarinet, uh, we do have a couple great pieces, of course, but not as many. As the other instruments. It's a smaller repertoire. Exactly. Yeah, and and yeah. he set out to do something about that. And it just happened that during his time, his contemporaries, there were some fantastic composers. Darius Mio wrote a clarinet concerto for Benny. 
Um, Paul Hindemith wrote mm -hmm. a very uh, difficult concerto for him. Uh, let's see, he was associated with Leonard Bernstein's Prelude, Fugue, and Riffs, right. and uh, Stravinsky's Ebony Concerto, mm -hmm. um, and of course, uh, the Copeland, Aaron Copeland's uh, Clarinet Concerto. To me, the, the magic about this piece is that, uh, and, and see, you got to understand when Benny w approached these composers to write something, of course, they all knew who Benny Goodman was. He was quite literally a household name at the Absolutely. time. And, um, and he didn't give them any parameters or directive. You know, you write whatever you want to write. We want something, a new clarinet piece. And he did this, of course, with Copeland as well. And the beautiful magic with this piece is that Copeland um, makes these very subtle hints towards who he's writing this for. Sure. He's not blatant, obvious, swing the eighth notes kind of thing. Right. It's just, it, it's, it's there. You know who he's writing this for. Absolutely. And I think it's one of the clever things. And it always, of course, sounds like Aaron Copeland, you know, his trademark orchestration and, and the way he writes. But um, I think that's one of the magical things about this piece is that um, it eludes, it, it creates the illusion of um, Benny Goodman, the yeah. king of swing. Well, I think the last movement of the piece is so Benny. Oh, very much. But the much. second movement is so Copeland. <laughs> right. And I love, the, I love the juxtaposition of those two, I think, big American personalities yes. in this music. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, the second movement is sublime, too, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so if you don't know this music, and you don't have a chance to get to St. Mary's Church tomorrow night as we record, make sure you listen to it. Go <laughs> online and listen to it. You know, you talk about... Commissioning, and we've talked to lots of people on the show about commissioning. Have you done any commissioning yourself? Uh, not personally. Uh, I was uh, one of my things is uh, I've gone around and uh, looked around for the last remaining musicians from the big band mm -hmm. era. Of course, mm -hmm. many of them are pushing 100 sure, now. And sure. uh, one in particular was a, a wonderful gentleman by the name of Van Alexander, uh -huh. who worked for the Chick Webb Orchestra. And his primary duty was to write uh, arrangements and new compositions for their singer, Ella Fitzgerald, way back in the 1930s. No small name there. And no small name. <laughs> and um, and he would go to the Savoy Ballroom and, and he would uh, bring his arrangements. Uh, he was the one who wrote uh, Tisket a Task, right. the big hit right. that uh, Ella sang in 1938. We had um, Patty Austin on the show and she exactly. talked about just having recorded those charts herself. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, Van and I, we uh, and our family had become uh, very good friends and uh, uh, I've tried, I tried before he passed away to to get him to maybe write, wouldn't you like to write a little clarinet piece? <laughs> hmm? How much would you charge? I He's, know just the guy that yeah, would play it for you. Exactly. He was so nice. He yeah. said he, he was basically retired, but uh, he, uh, you know, and, and of course gave him recordings to listen to sure. and things. And, yeah. and uh, just, it, he was really something to go over to his house and here he is 98 years old and he's making ice cream cones for my kids and he's oh, talking wow. about writing music for Ella Fitzgerald in the 1930s. And I'm just like, I can't believe this is really happening. All of this in one place. <laughs> right. Your kids and these in this legend. All exactly. In one place. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about your life in the Utah Symphony before I let you go, because um, that's obviously a big part of your world sure. as a clarinet player. I heard you play um, Miraculous Mandarin at Carnegie Hall, huge clarinet part. I wonder, like that piece, what are, the, what are the orchestral pieces that you really look forward to? What are the things that when you see them on the schedule, you think, ah, great. What's the, what's the good clarinet stuff? Well, that's one in particular you mentioned that. And yeah. Incidentally, as you may know, uh, that Benny Goodman approached Bella Bartok to write a clarinet yeah. piece, The, the yeah. Contrast, in 1939. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but that's, that's a wonderful one. Things yeah. like that where you have some of the sense of slight 
um, maybe creating the illusion of improvisation, yeah. you know, uh, rhapsodic. And right. I really enjoy pieces like that. Yeah. The, the Kodai dances of Galanta mm -hmm. is another one. Um, and the, the aforementioned, uh, the uh, Bartok. Yeah. Um, and, and I, you know, the other thing too, is that any of the classical literature, um, you know, the era of the late uh, 1700s, uh, Mozart and late Haydn and Beethoven are all such fantastic composers and they just, wrote such beautiful things for the woodwinds and, and for the clarinet in yeah. particular. It's kind of amazing what those guys asked from the clarinetists of yeah. their day. Yes. Because the instruments obviously <laughs> were newish. And, right. Rather primitive. And you have to imagine <laughs> that technique must have been something that was much more difficult to come by back then. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's amazing what they asked of the clarinetists. <laughs> but, well, Tad, it's been so great to have you here. Before I let you go, I have to ask you a question that we ask all of the guests of the Ghost Light Podcast. And if you've listened, you've heard it. But because of our name and the fact that theaters are haunted, I'm curious, Ted, have you ever seen a ghost? Give us some details if you have. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Well, I will admit that uh, back in my early days, before, let's say, when I first joined the symphony mm -hmm. and before I owned a home, mm -hmm. uh, I would show up religiously every morning before rehearsal at a Bravanel Hall with the go just the ghost light myself, sure. 7.30 every sure. morning. Yeah, you, you hear about people saying that they're not a morning person. Well, I, I confess I am a morning person, yeah. and I get my best work usually done at that time. And um, I'm trying to think, did I? I don't think I've ran into any ghost. Well, that sounds <laughs> like for parts. it sounds like for quite some time you were a ghost at the Ravenel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was an early morning club back then. The yeah. piccolo player used to uh, Mike Vance oh, sure. uh, used to show up about sure. eight fifteen, yeah. and there was a marvelous viola player, Paul. Um, uh, Jorgensen, yeah. I believe his name, yeah. who used to show up. Uh, actually, he would beat me. He would get there at 7.20. Yeah. His reply was he told me that um, he said uh, he was in the Marine Corps during World War II and uh -huh. you know just got used to getting up early in the morning and sure. so became a viola player. He still got up early. So. A, a viola instead of a gun. I think <laughs> exactly. that's a choice we would all make. Yeah, very well, good choice. Well, I mean, it, even if you, haven't, if you didn't see a ghost in those days, it sounds like you were part of a little ghost collective. So, well, Tad... Great to hear you playing this week, and so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you very much. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>